It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hey everybody, Patrick on here, and welcome back to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. Man, it's history time. So I'm here with my dude, Eris Pina, who's a CompuBox operator, and also, more importantly, just a history guy, like myself. We're back, bro. What's up? How you doing? Everything's good, man. Everything is going really good. I um, just recently returned this past weekend from the Boxing Hall of Fame with um, for a longtime friend of the show and our buddy there, uh, Gray Johnson. And yeah, it was a good time. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> nah, dude, I'm super happy that you guys got to go. And especially because it was, uh, you know, last year was bananas. And then this year, far more fucking chill. But, you know, yeah. not partially not by fucking choice because of wildfire smoke and shit was forcing everybody inside and it scary was situation. You know, Hall of Fame grounds were bare the entire weekend. I actually never even visited them once besides like driving by them a couple of times. But, um, yeah, everything took place at the Turning Stone, and um, but it was a good time. You'd still be able to see people. We hung out, we drank with a lot of friends. You know, ran into people, bought some cool shit at the card show, and um, you know, considering we're doing part two of fifties heavyweights, I should mention one thing I wanted to buy so badly, and if I didn't buy two programs that went pushed me way over my budget, I definitely would have bought it. Was um was an old closed circuit poster of um Ali Cleveland Williams, which. You know, in itself, it's kind of cool, but nothing like super remarkable because you always want, you know, the um, actual on-site poster if possible. But what makes this one really interesting is that it was a uh, Cleveland Williams. It was autographed by Cleveland Williams and inscribed to somebody with like a cool little inscription about, you know, God loves you and yada, 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 Cleveland Big Cat Williams. And That's that was actually cool. being sold at, yeah, it was being sold by um, Greg Leone, Boxing Talk Greg Leone who surprisingly, I did not know this, has a pretty you know, impressive collection of memorabilia. Yes, he was making some good money with those videos back in the early 2000s, you know, charging people for the floor. Yo, 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 what's good? What's the fire? <laughs> I never actually watched any of those, so I can't tell you what, what was uh, going on. Well, I, I just quoted that shit pretty fucking good, to be honest. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure Gray, well, if he winds up tuning into this, will know. But yeah, it's... Yeah. needless to say if he's got a collection like that boxing boxing talk must have been doing pretty well we I mean, definitely man when they were having that little mini war with max box and they were putting out a lot of content so thanks <laughs> that's pretty yeah. cool though dude you know that's it, that's unfortunately you weren't able to snag that too but i mean you did get oh, some pretty cool did, shit man. absolutely i did man i got myself a mint mint uh salvador sanchez wilfredo gomez uh program and um a Sugar Ray Leonard, Wilfred Benitez program. Both of those are exceptionally rare, so I'm happy. Yeah, just about anything Benitez too is uh, you know, you don't really see a ton of it overall. So that's pretty cool, man. Oh, that's pretty fucking yeah, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So you you brought up the topic already. The we're doing the kind of part two. We're returning 
look, I just to throw it out there just so people are like, dude, all right, what's up? You're picking this shit back up after like two and a half months. Look, I've been sick as hell, y'all. I've been like almost dead, not literally, but who knows? Maybe, I don't know, but I was not in good shape, but we're back. But that's why we're coming back like two months later. We did a part one. Uh, I'll figure out how to link that or whatever in the video, but we did a part one of the 1950s kind of lost heavyweights. Um, and just to kind of briefly revisit that concept in case you haven't watched part one, basically the world heavyweight title was held up in the 1950s and kind of early 1960s, mostly by Cus D'Amato and Floyd Patterson, um, largely Cus D'Amato, not so much Floyd Patterson by the sound of it, but uh, Cus D'Amato probably ensured that Floyd Patterson hung on to the title as long as he did, to be frank. So, I mean, you know, it, it kind of worked both ways, but nonetheless, and waiting in the wings were these set of fighters who probably ripened on the vine in one way or another, you know, waiting for a title shot. Some of them did get title shots, but at a time that was, in in some cases, years later than they should have, et cetera, et cetera. So these are the the fighters that we're talking about. We already talked about Cleveland Williams, Eddie Machen, and Zora Foley in the part one. So we're just picking up where we left off here in part two. So these other fighters, Eris, what's another fighter of these kind of the the lost heavyweights from 19, 1950s? All right, um, we talked about it before, right before the show just started, actually. I was going to veer off ever so slightly to to shed light on a heavyweight who I wouldn't put him in that, cap, can't put him in that category, actually, because he wasn't a heavyweight that was actually avoided by Floyd Patterson, nor Customato. So if you know of his abilities by that point, that Customato is willingly allowing Patterson to fight you, then you see what side he falls on. But his story is still interesting enough and remarkable enough that he should get mentioned for that era because he was, might've been the most colorful guy from that time, especially for a bland time for boxing when, you know, most guys were just distinguished by what, you know, um, trunks with that they were wearing, you know what I mean? So I'm talking about Tommy Hurricane Jackson, the one that catapulted uh, Patterson to his uh, eventual title win over Archie Moore. And then, you know, the reign that he had from there. Yeah, there was a, uh, he was among the kind of contenders in that era who, like you said, um, you know, just, uh, I guess, kind of encapsulated a little bit. Times were really weird uh, for boxing in the 1950s and a large, like the late 1940s, early 1950s, a lot of stuff changed. And I mean, almost too much to really fit into like what I, you know, I want to keep it short. But one of the major things obviously was the International Boxing Club in New York, had come had uh, risen to power on the heels of the 20th century boxing club run by Jim Jacobs. Jim, ja- Jim Jacobs had a stroke, a really bad stroke. And basically it's actually really sad to look at in photos because the dude looks like, you know, full of vitality. And then like he has a stroke and you see photos of him and he does not look like the same guy whatsoever. And uh, in his ill health, uh, basically, uh, you know, he, he was kind of pushed out and Joe Lewis helped orchestrate this takeover where with his help as heavyweight champion helped orchestrate the takeover of the IBC. And that changed a lot of shit in boxing, especially with the heavyweight championship. And then TV, the entry of TV into the equation, all of a sudden, you know, it's, we're kind of at a, at a point where we are now where people are saying boxing's dead, boxing's dying. Oh my God, what are we going to do? 
in some ways it was true because a, a lot of local scenes and club shows shut down because when TV money entered the equation, everybody wanted the fucking TV money. And all of a sudden fighters who were on TV regularly were making way more than fighters who were fighting off TV. And so a lot of these club shows just couldn't, they couldn't compete. It's basically like, you know, a bunch of Walmarts moved in and the mom and pop shops were couldn't fucking hang dude. And so that's exactly what, what we're in the midst of right here. And also custom auto, his claim that, you know, the mob was always trying to get on him and he was a clean guy, et cetera, et cetera, despite a number of his associations that have been, you know, noted over the years. So that's kind of where we are, where a lot of these guys enter the equation here, including Tommy Jackson. And so, you know, uh, Tommy Jackson is uh, like a number of fighters from around this era, born in the South, but then goes goes north goes to new york to ply his trade and become a fighter what's and that up, and then he ends up in queens that's well stone's throw dude i mean you know what i mean it's it's definitely a big change but a lot of fighters and a lot of a lot of black folks especially made that journey in the 1940s and 50s they certainly did and Jackson, what you know, stood out absolutely just stood out from the pack, and not in terms of ability, because I, if you ever watch him, he does everything. He, he was a catastrophe in the ring. You know, everything he did, everything wrong. All right, he didn't have any sign of defense. In fact, he enjoyed getting hit. Um, you know, and he just none of his punches really made sense. He didn't really, you know, no technique, nothing like that. But he was strong. He, like I said, he liked to take punishment, so he was absolutely, you know, a shock absorber, um, more so than most people. And he was a windmill. Like, you couldn't stop him. The guy had, a, like, an absolute, he was just, you know, an animal mentality. And when it comes down to it, you know, certain fighters like that, like, you know, you've seen Mayorga in more recent times. Even Mayorga probably had more technique than Tommy Jackson. But um, when you see guys like that, that kind of, like, animalistic style, it's, it's so awkward. And so, you know, sometimes it's difficult to beat. Even for like more, you know, obviously more classic stand-up fighters, technically more trained, have a modicum of ability, they can't do something, you know, they just get overwhelmed by these type of guys. And Jackson um, was able to acquire that and able to do that, especially in the early 50s um, when the division was still in transition from Marciano and basically just like, you know, rotten mediocrity at the moment, at, you know, at, as well. So yeah, They say... Uh... I don't, I can't really find a whole ton about this in the newspapers, but there, it was brought up a, a couple times that he liked to throw the double punch, you know, yeah. the old Pacquiao. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Except that for he, absolutely. he supposedly threw like a double uppercut in close, you know, but he, he was pretty wild. And we've talked about, like you brought it up, but we've talked about that before that um, it's easy to laugh at fighters like Mayorga, maybe. But um, it's easy to laugh at a lot of fighters who maybe lack refinement or lack classical or orthodox techniques or whatever textbook techniques. But sometimes that can actually be an asset. It can be a boon. You know, it can be an advantage. Uh, not every fighter knows how to use that kind of um, awkwardness or whatever to their advantage. But some fighters do. And, you know, Tommy Jackson we're not going to lie. He's not, he never really made top tier or whatever, but he was a contender there for a little bit. And he managed to kind of harness that ability briefly. He absolutely did, man, you know, and quite quickly he became a popular uh, commodity out there because of his style, you know, 
kind of was one of those that he's going to throw a million punches. He's not going to stop coming at you. And, and like I said, of him being a shock absorber, um, it's, here we go right here. This is the article I was actually trying to bring up. Um, he, you know, in the type of the, in, like I said, in the type of the fifties of the heavyweight division where, you know, there's, you know, there's brawlers, there's good boxers. There's still guys hanging on the vine, like Ezra Charles and a few others, you know, a guy like Jackson and his whirlwind style is a breath of fresh air. And he starts getting a lot of backers, most notably um, former heavyweight champion, Jack Dempsey, who, you know, Dempsey was one of those guys that if he noticed somebody that kind of had a style similar to his, he would tend to get very excited about it. And he said, kind of said the same thing about Jackson as he noted his peculiar style, as he described it, <laughs> you know, clearly trying to say tongue in cheek that Jackson kind of reminded him of, of himself. But what's interesting about him too, is that um, <clears throat> he was, I'm trying to find it over here. With, with AJ Leibling, um, how do you say his name? Leibling? Liebling, Leibling, something like that. Either way, we know who we're, who you're talking about. So again, the guy that we brought before in the show, Carlos Azevedo, he wrote an article about Tommy Jackson that's pretty fascinating for handle boxing. Uh, actually, before the pandemic, a number of years ago. But um, here I'll just read this quote. Right? I'll read this uh, paragraph so you can get what I mean. Only a cameo role in the Sweet Science, Magnum Opus, AJ Liebling, now preserved in a plush library of hard book, America hardback. Keeps 19, former 1950s heavyweight conundrum Tommy Hurricane Jackson from being forgotten. Even so, the fact that Jackson lingers in the public record because of Liebling remains something of a mixed blessing. Although Liebling was once committed to low life, which was what New York editor Harold Ross called the curbside dispatches he published by Joseph Mitchell, Meyer Berger, and Liebling, he was still an Ivy League product, a high society epicure, and the husband of Pulitzer, a Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Gene Stafford, ex-wife of poet Laurent Robert Lowell. His arc portrait of, Jack of Jackson in The Sweet Science, as Joyce Carol Oates has pointed out, borders on pitless. Just as Liebling could rarely bring himself to acknowledge organized crime, flesh-peddling managers, fixed fights, or even dis disintegrating ex-pugs walking on their heels, he was unable to see Jackson as a troubled figure whose distress regularly manifested himself in and out of the ring. For Liebling, Hurricane was just a prop for one of his clever conceits. On the night of the fight, I was more excited than I had been before any match for, for years. And for purely subjective reasons, Liebling wrote about the evening Jackson faced Nino Valdez in Madison Square Garden. If the animal won, it meant the sweet science was more guesswork, requiring not even a specialized intelligence. <laughs> so basically, he just referred to Jackson as some kind of primal animal that, like, if he was winning, then boxing is just kind of like throw a coin in the air. You know, and, and my own, first of all, Carlos is a really, really good writer. Um, so, I mean, just about anything he writes is going to be worthwhile, worth reading, but <clears throat> a lot of the, a lot of the writing of, of writers like Liebling, Liebling, whatever the fuck, you know, a lot of people who have read a lot of boxing, uh, writing are very familiar with Mailer, you know, Joyce Carol Oates, etc. Yeah. And so, not all of these people, but Liebling in Liebling, whatever, and in particular, in my opinion, is one of the type of writers who really overly romanticized what boxing is and kind of like gave it this air of artistic something or other that people really live with now. And I see it all the time on the history pages where 
you know, if you mention something that happened or something somebody did, they're just like, what, you know, this is a warrior. These people, they're giving their lives and putting down their blood. And it's like, these people are doing a job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I'm not trying to fucking, you know, these are human beings. These are not, these are not fucking demigods. You know, these, you've been watching too much fucking 300 dude. Like you're, you know these are human beings man you know they they've done fucked up shit they think fucked up shit you know etc and and so in any way and not to go too far off on the rant but that's a lot of these kinds of fighters were like overly romanticized uh you know tommy jackson kind of falls into that category even even if the patterson rematch in particular is a lot of fun but you know it's uh yeah that, you know, that's just one of my pet peeves i guess when it comes to the writing the thing about Jackson is that he benefited from, he was one of the early contenders of at the turn of the 50s. You know, so before like Machen and Zora Foley and a few others really came on the scene in a year or two um, after Jackson started making his course, Jackson was still feeding on the guys, the former contenders that were slightly that were leftovers from the Joe Lewis and uh, kind of Joe Lewis, but mostly from the Marciano era. Guys like Rex Lane, um, Ezra Charles, um, uh, who was the Clarence Henry? Henry, Henry, Jesus Christ, Clarence Henry, who knocked the shit out of Bob Satterfield and many other heavyweights back in the day, um, and guys like that, you know. And that, and like I said, with his type of style and the way he was moving and just you know being a shock absorber, he, he became very popular, especially around like the Eastern Parkway Arena and you know local spots like that. Before he eventually made his way to um to Madison Square Garden, you know he had a couple of slip ups. Um, because a guy with this style is obviously going to be made to order for some people. Jimmy Slade, who was a spoiler and a tough contender from that era, um, much more forgotten than a lot of other guys, but, you know, a very tough guy, um, had his number, beat him a couple of times when they fought. Um, when he finally stepped up and really showed where his place was in the division, he fought Nino Valdez, a guy who I'm sure we'll bring up later on the show. And Nino Valdez absolutely curb stomped him in a couple of rounds, just very, very badly. It was, it was a massacre. But that being said, he was still able to bounce back and still, again, feast on the guys that from back in the past. Like, for instance, in 1955, he fights Ezra Charles back to back and beats him on decisions. Charles, by 55, is an absolute shell of himself. Probably shouldn't be fighting anymore. But as we know, he lasted way too much longer. You know, he still had a number of years to go and had an unfortunate. Um, yeah, he fought for several years, really washed. It, you know, he did, and he took a lot of unnecessary beatings because of it, too. You know, kind of like probably we wouldn't see anything like that until something like, you know, Wilfred Benitez a few decades later in terms of just hanging on the vine and just taking punishment when against guys he had no business even shining his shoes half a decade before that, you know. He but, defeated Charlie Burley and then graduated from high school the next day. Incredible. <laughs> Yowza! Not only beat Charlie Burley, but beat the shit out of him and almost knocked him out. <laughs> like, wow! You know, that's somebody tweeted some shit earlier today that was just like, you know, say something—an incredible boxing fact people wouldn't believe. But that's that's a good one, actually. Absolutely. <laughs> but he was able to again beat Rex Lane in a rematch, and then he was also able to defeat you know, a guy that we brought up for a brief moment in the last show, Bob Baker, and in turn that propelled him um by 1956 to fight floyd patterson 
And this time now, it's for um, not for the vacant heavyweight championship, but basically an elimination fight uh, to see who's going to be, you know, propelled for, to fight Archie Moore for the vacant title. And, you know, their first fight, Patterson, again, this kind of shows you already that if, like, Customato is willing to match his, uh, to match his guy, his precocious little prospect in Patterson against a guy like Jackson, then you already know where Jackson's limits might be because if, for instance, Sonny Liston or somebody was proposed to fight for the vacant title, I'm just throwing a name, for example, um, I'm pretty sure Customato would have done everything in his power to make sure that, that none, of the, like, none of that would have happened. He would have found another avenue. But, um, yeah, he was fine with it. And it ended up being a really rousing affair, a fight that most people thought Patterson just kind of beat the shit out of him. Well, he did for the most part, but also, too, he injured his hand at one point during the fight. I don't know if he broke it or whatever it was, but definitely damaged it. And Jackson was able to rally in the second half of the fight and make him work much more closer than it should have been. But also very exciting. Um, so from there, Patterson ended up squeaking by with a split decision that most people thought should have been unanimous, but... Jackson made his case that at least he was going to be able to, going to, be able to hang around uh, the division top 10 from there for a little bit. So, Yeah, and I mean, especially at this time, you know, uh, Floyd Patterson was only once defeated, and he's still the gold medalist. He's still like an amateur standout. And he had also, uh, if a lot of people you know, probably by this time forgot, was a middleweight. And yeah. had kind of been fast tracked up to heavyweight, and even at then was like you know people were like oh, he's not very big, <laughs> but his saving grace, of course, was that he could fucking hit. Uh, that Floyd Patterson, I've seen his fist at the Hall of Fame, bro. He had some paws, okay. Like his hand, he was not a large dude. Like in general, he just wasn't a like a big guy, you know. But he he could swat, especially for his size. And that and kind he of that, that, he tried to leap at you too, man. And imagine one of those left hooks while he's jumping that careening at you. And, well, nah. and, and that made the difference in a number of his fights is like the tenacity and the punching power. The fact that he was, he was, well, that's why he got knocked down so much too, is he'd leap at your ass. And if you timed it right, his the quote unquote gazelle punch, you know. But, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, he but he was dangerous. And so especially then Floyd Patterson, very well thought of, you know, he, he was getting defeated by Floyd Patterson or at least going kind of close with him. Mm-hmm. There's no shame in that for Tommy Jackson. He's still in the money there. Absolutely. All he just needs and still it's still a wide open division because certain guys are going to be absolutely avoided. So Jackson has an easier route to getting another title shot as opposed to someone like Eddie Machen or Zora Foley or you know, Sonny Liston or a few other guys will bring up in a couple of minutes. So it's like, well, he just needs a couple more wins and custom models somehow be like, hey, you know, I think we can give him a rematch. I think the crowd deserves and come up with some bullshit, right? And that's exactly what happens. He um, beats Bob Baker in another fight, and then he beats um, Julio Medeiros, who we brought up, I think, on the on the last show as well. And it's all that was needed for him to get another title shot up Floyd Patterson. And this time, I, you know, this was just... It's on YouTube if you want to watch it. You know what I mean? It, it's it's pretty brutal. Like, Patterson beats him like a drum. And Jackson just gets, you know, that something like that would not be lasting that much as long as the, the referee let it last in that fight. Because, I mean, Patterson just beats the absolute daylights out of him. That's, that's another factor, what you just said in, like, you know, I don't, I try not to get too hardcore about the, uh, fighters from other eras being so much better or anything like that but something that you do kind of have to consider is that fights went on way longer 
in a lot of other eras. And so a lot of fighters, especially the ones that already had a shitload of knockouts, would have even more today because that shit would have been stopped rounds ago. You know, they're like a cut or whatever, you know. So, I mean, it's, yeah, no question. And Tommy Jackson just got beaten to shit. It's it's fun to kind of like he's trying he's in there swinging but he gets beaten up pretty good oh and like you know back then like those videos back then you know how they kind of like accentuate the sound of the punch when it's landing because it's so like (laughs) yeah you listen to patterson just beat him bro he doesn't miss any of his punches it's like a rocky film you know what i mean he just he just hits him hits him hits him hits him jackson's head and his body and everything and like you said jackson tries he's game but he just gets the shit kicked out of him badly and Jackson, you know, had a peculiar outlook on when he would get punched and stuff like that. He said that he enjoyed getting hit. He said that he liked it. He said, I enjoy getting hit. It makes me feel good and it makes me feel strong. So, I mean, I must he must have been absolute euphoria in that second Patterson fight because, I mean, you know. That fool is Mr. Universe. <laughs> he got, he got like, an asshole. Yeah, apparently he was the 1950s version of Joe Grimm or something. But I know I'm throwing out a random name there. I was the turn of the century heavyweight that, you know, everyone took a turn beating the daylights out of. But no one yeah, could actually stop him. He was known for taking a licking and keep on ticking or whatever, you know. That was basically, that was like really all he did. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. But, and that was his downfall after that because then after uh, Patterson beat him in his rematch, now we're talking 1957, um, the other heavyweights have emerged now. You know, guys, like his very next fight, he fights Eddie Machen. Eddie Machen, uh, at this point, is undefeated. Um, probably, you know, at the very near top of the division, clearly being avoided by everybody. Not everybody, but, you know, uh, the heavyweight champion, mainly Customato's boy. And um, has a point to prove. And so after Patterson did what he did and goes nine rounds with him, Machen wants to make sure that, you know, he beats the daylights out of him badly. Um he uh, gets stopped in round 10 because, I mean, again, like Jackson is the type of dude that usually would go rounds with people. Nino Valdez stopped him relatively early, but, like, this was, you know, one of those rare occasions where Machen, who was usually more of a defensive guy, decided just to go out and out and just beat the crap out of somebody, and exactly what he did. So that was it, yeah. man. You know, his career never really recovered. After a few more fights, he just kind of retired. Two straight ass whoopings, to be honest. I mean, like, you know, and they, two straight ass whoopings that went rounds, too. Like, they weren't even, like you know, a couple of rounds, but like they both went 10 rounds. And so, you know, it doesn't, might not seem like much, especially for fighters who fought like, you know, 50, 60, 70 times or whatever, but 20 rounds in a row of getting your ass kicked is going to do some damage. And it did. Um, And it did some damage to his career. Yeah. Like you say, never really bounced back. Uh, You know, almost everybody that he fought after that was some kind of like, at best pseudo contender mostly journeyman um the only significant thing was that that eddie machin fight happened at the uh legendary cow palace and dailies <laughs> i don't know why that just always cracks me up dude because apparently that venue was like the shit when it came to boxing on the west coast and like the night they loved that fucking venue in the 1950s bro everybody fought there um, you know what it shut down? what's that you want to shut down i have no idea I couldn't even tell you where the hell Daly City is, bro. <laughs> I don't know. I've probably driven by it or through like it. I heard Cal Palace, I think San Francisco. I'm not sure why. It's probably, yeah, it's probably up north somewhere near that, but I, I couldn't tell you. 
it's just funny because I see that venue and I'm like, that's so strange. Um, and it, it looks like a cool outdoor venue too. But in any case, uh, yeah, his career just never really recovered. In 1960, he gets stopped uh, by Hans Kalbfell. He brought over to Germany to you know, take a fall for this dude. And that was I the mean, end of yeah, it. Bro, like the way things uh, never really changed. Just think about it. How many times does that even still happen today where there's going to take a body and bring them over to pat someone's record in Europe? Yeah, dude. And I, I mean, it still happens. Well, everywhere, you know, dudes. Yeah. Well, and women getting brought over state to state, country to country to country fodder for it happens and that's just kind of the the meat grinder of the boxing world as it were but um but yeah dude uh after so that's 44 fights it's not like he had a, a super long career with a ton of fights but it's significant and he got in there got a heavyweight title shot that he just got absolutely you know moiked in but that's the problem too though is that was a brutal 44 fight career you know yeah for sure well, it was somewhat I felt that needed to be brought up. Not so much that he was a part of that era of being avoidance, but being one of the more colorful guys and having a very interesting story and everything like that and being, you know, very exciting in the ring. So, <laughs> Yeah, um, and one of the fighters that you brought up too I thought would be good to just kind of piggyback right off that and go into Nino Valdez. Um, Absolutely. You know, just a, a good fighter to talk about, some good background Uh pretty good tv fighter too somebody who there's some videos out there so he's not unknown or anything like that at this point um but you know i i personally am fascinated by fighters from cuba um it's just a, a system and a and a culture like a fighting culture that to me is really interesting um and nino valdez is really no, no exception in that regard especially because nino valdez's career starts in the early 1940s and so we're talking about people who are in boxing still have the memory. You know, I still remember shit that happened 10, 20 years ago in boxing pretty easily. Some of it I remember very clearly. Yeah. Others, not so fucking much. But regardless, people who were in boxing could definitely remember Kid Chocolate. They knew, you know, how much excitement he brought. They knew that uh, even in his wake, you know, there had been a number of Cuban fighters who'd been brought over. And just about any time that happens, it's not just with Cuban fighters and it's not just in the U.S., but there are some really good examples like fucking Gennady Golovkin, you know, some huge success. And now all of a sudden, ever since then, we've seen a flood of fighters from Kazakhstan who, I mean, it's not to say that they did not exist before. They just were not focused on in that regard. You know, after Gennady Golovkin or Manny Pacquiao, and all of a sudden there's far more Filipino, et cetera, et cetera. Same thing happened after Pancho Villa, right? After Pancho Villa's reign, a shitload of Filipino, like Frank Churchill, a promoter, went into the Philippines and basically just brought back like in 10, di 10 different trips, like a whole bunch of Filipino fighters in the 1920s and 30s. In any case, uh, so the same kind of thing is happening with Cuba after Kid Chocolate's career has subsided and, you know, he burns really brightly for a few years and then just kind of fades out. And Nino Valdez, uh, you know, is figures into the Kid Chocolate story pretty easily because um, this is the story as far as how he came about. Supposedly he got his name, Nino Valdez is because his mother, Nino's mother went to Pincho Gutierrez, who was the guy who managed Kid Chocolate 
uh, from way back in the day. He also managed Black Bill, who was a Cuban legend and, you know, a dude that Kid Chocolate knew very well and number number other Cubans. So Valdez's mother asked Pincho Gutierrez if he would take on Valdez, her little Nino. And I guess this was like a big public plea, you know, like she like went to him when you know was like begging him or some shit like that. And Pincho Gutierrez wound up taking him in and Nino Valdez wound up growing to be about 6'2", six, 6'3", six, within a few years. And so the name Nino stuck because people were like, oh, that's the little Nino that he took on because, you know, it says the mama's boy or whatever type of thing. But for whatever reason, the, you know, probably the white people in the U.S. who just didn't want to say the Nino just called started calling him Nino or perhaps writers forgot to put the little squiggly over the N. So they just started calling him Nino and that caught on. And that was how Nino Valdez kind of earned his name or whatever. But in any case, uh, similar to Kid Chocolate, like I was saying, Pincho Gutierrez, he got Valdez a number of wins in Cuba and then brought him up to the East Coast of the U.S., just like he did with Kid Chocolate. And, uh, you know, there were, uh, there were just like Kid Chocolate, there were reports where he's compared to just about any Latin fighter or any Cuban fighter around, of course. But uh, the problem was that Valdez struggled really badly against a couple of light heavyweights in Harold Johnson and Archie Moore. Now, of course, in retrospect, no, zero shame whatsoever. Light heavyweight greats, like what are you going to do? But nonetheless, that kind of puts a little bit of a damper, you know, when you're touting this guy from Cuba and then bringing him up and saying, look what he's going to do. And then he's like, oh, shit, he didn't do as well as I thought he was going to do. So nonetheless, though, that's kind of where he enters the fray as a, as a fighter, as a meaningful fighter in the U.S. Well, absolutely. Like you said, when he first comes there, it's by like you said, he starts his career in the, the early 40s. I was actually surprised. I didn't realize he started his career in 1941. But um, yeah, like way earlier than I thought. Way, way earlier. But yeah, he gets built up early on in Cuba. A lot of big wins. And like you said, there's some stumbling blocks when he first uh, comes to America. Not only does he lose to uh, Archie Moore. And um, Harold Johnson, two all-time greats. He lo- he also loses to um, contenders, but a guy you know, guys that aren't even remembered today, um, like Archie McBride and um, Bob Baker. So it's like he's you know, it's a transition period for him. Obviously, he's not Kid Chocolate in terms of coming right over and just dazzling the audiences and going straight to the top. It's going to be a little bit more difficult for him. But he's a grinder, and he's still you know accumulating more wins than he is losses. And one of those wins I should know it also is against another uh, Cuban heavyweight who came a little bit before him, Emilio um, uh, Agramonte. Mm-hmm. Is his last name right? Or close enough? Um, uh, let's see. I wrote it down because I I noted the same shit you did apparently. Uh, shit. Where? Yes. Yeah. Agramonte. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he was a contender you know, a lower end contender, um, even during Lewis's time. And I believe uh, Lewis did fight him and won a decision over him after he, after he, uh, he lost the championship. But, you know, Agramonte at that point was on the back end of his career. And, you know, with Valdez stopping him, kind of solidified himself as the new, like, you know, Cuban heavyweight to come out and be, you know, the top guy, light heavyweight, yep. heavyweight. So, like you said, he loses to Harold Johnson, loses to Archie Moore. But after he beats Agramonte, he fights Sir Charles. And like we said, Ezra Charles at this point, you know, definitely on the back end a little bit. But in 1953, he still had, a, you know, had some more gas in the tank. And um, 
I think even before like the Marciano fight. So it's kind of like here we are with him. You know what I mean? Like that's a big win. That's a really, really big win. And for him to beat uh, Charles, who was still a contender and not a guy that was taking L's every other weekend, really put his career, you know, on the right path. He ends up beating Archie McBride again in a rematch and goes on a, you know, pretty substantial run, including the aforementioned Tommy Jackson massacre where he just, you know, bludgeons him. So at this point, it's, you know, looking, it was looking at this point that he's becoming more, you know, closer to a top contender and a guy that, you know, is being discussed for a title fight. But by 1955, he fights Archie Moore again. And Moore, who is one of the more successful light heavyweight champions to move up in heavyweight and have success without actually winning a title because, you know, how many of them could say that back then? But Moore, got to keep in mind, even though his light heavyweight champion was the consensus number one contender for the heavyweight title um, during that time, especially after Marciano retired because he was the last guy to fight Marciano. He dropped him, yada, yada, yada. But that motherfucker he, was so ancient that so much of his actual he- this actual championship career came after the fucking Marcian. Like, yes, it's crazy. Oh after, my god, his career was should have been ended. He already had like three careers by the time he finally won the title against Joey Maxson. You know what I mean? So that's so wild to me. Is like you actually look at look at the actual timeline of his career, and it's like he won the title when? It, it's absolutely insane. But what's interesting. I find an error is that when he fought Archie, uh, when he fought a rematch with Archie Moore, he fought it at Cashman Field in Las Vegas, which is obviously uh, outside. And um, I believe this was the fight that they said where, when he was fighting Moore, that Moore uh, kept on maneuvering himself, that um, he kept on maneuvering himself so that Valdez continuously had the sun in his eyes, <laughs> and he couldn't do anything about it. And Moore was able to beat him up that way tricky bastard like he just yeah. would sit there and sweet talk fighter mm-hmm. <laughs> all sorts of like, yeah yeah relaxing this and stuff like that absolutely son of a bitch dude gosh it, they said um what was it willie pastrano that they said when he fought him yeah he fought him and he was like he went back to his corner and he was like man this is the sweetest man ever what do you want me to hurt him for they're like don't listen to him yeah stop listening <laughs> to him stop <laughs> listening <laughs> He's and complimenting he's me. Out there again, he's being nice. He's being nice. And they said, all of a sudden, Archie Moore would tell you, stand still. Because you listen, you would for a quick second. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Archie Moore, uh, it just lest anybody say, no, nah, he was old, washed up. He's crappy. Like I said, this was still like before his, but at heavyweight, though, that's the thing is that he just wasn't a super big guy. And so he wasn't, he wasn't a massive heavyweight. Archie Moore, that is. But yeah, I mean, you know, getting in there with Archie Moore even for Nino Valdez is significant. Oh, absolutely. And after, you know, the rematch with Archie Moore, now it's 1955. He's been a pro for a long time. Now he's he's starting to slow down a little bit. But at that, even still, like, you know, because I said, you know, the other contenders are starting to emerge again, most notably Eddie Machen, who was matched very toughly early in his career. One of the few guys that didn't really have a padded record um, his pedigree already had him going against low, you know, washed up former contenders, lower end contenders or prospects or whatever it is. And Valdez became one of his uh, victims twice, in fact. So, yeah, it, it's uh, I it's actually pretty crazy, dude, because there were uh, a lot of people don't qu- quite realize, and obviously that's why we're doing the show too, but a lot of people don't quite realize how big a star Valdez was actually in Cuba around this time that you're talking about where he was uh, like in the early 1950s and mid-1950s. 
um well one of the things that you mentioned actually the the dude that he defeated Omelio Agramonte was the Cuban heavyweight champion and at this time obviously I'm not going to like fib and be like oh that was a big deal it wasn't like a big deal but we've talked about this before where regional titles and sometimes even state titles or whatever not that we're following the lineage of it per se but those kinds of things like um capturing the New York state high heavyweight title or capturing the the British heavyweight title or the European heavyweight title not that anybody was going to confuse you for the actual champion but that might more put you in line to get a shot at the actual champion than these days for instance like these days somebody's going to be like oh so and so is the fucking you know Welsh heavyweight champion and they're going to be like so yeah. Why is why is Tyson Fury going to fight that fucking guy? You know, like that's that's not a thing these days. Back it's, then, it would have yeah. been. You know, it kind of reminds me of um when Larry Holmes was going to fight uh, Lorenzo Zeno, right? <laughs> and yeah, and he was he he was like kind of obviously kind of bored and didn't really give a shit about it. But when he was asked about the fight, uh, they were like, "So you know, what do you think about Zeno and his chances?" And yada yada yada. And Holmes said something to the effect of, "Well, he's a champion of Europe." So I guess that means something, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, um, Obviously, yeah. at some point, you know. Yeah, those things... like, well, I guess he deserves a shot, if anything, because of that. So, sure. It's, yeah, and at some point, those things cease to be as meaningful. I would imagine probably when fighters stopped fighting nearly as much. Because it's like you can't waste your fucking two or three fights a year. You can't waste one of them on some dude like you've never heard of because he's the champion of latvia or some shit like that it's not gonna happen with all due respect to latvia i want to put it past fury bro at, well at this point dude he's talking about fighting like random australian dudes he's i mean who fucking i don't even care anytime he opens his mouth i literally just don't pay attention at this point but that being because he's gonna be like he's gonna be hacking through some video he's gonna be oh, i think maybe if i use it no, not going to do it. Long, long story short, getting back to Nino Valdez and his stardom in Cuba. Yeah, so defeating the Cuban heavyweight champion at this point, it at least was somewhat meaningful, and he became the Cuban heavyweight champion. Uh, but the over the next few years, though, Valdez really the only one, the one bad loss he had was a knockout loss to Eddie Machen in '56. Beyond that, like almost all the losses that he took were like respectable losses like he wasn't getting the shit kicked out of him they were yeah. close losses or it was like to like a pretty good fighter or a fellow contender etc so one, i don't mean to cut you off Pat, yeah. but one notable one notable loss though that kind of is like an eye-popping one that you're like oh wow okay was um to a guy named charlie powell and yeah i see you make the face right away because you already know like charlie all right you know, we, we've done shows before about, like, you know, guys from different, I, I believe we have at least. If we haven't, maybe we should. Um, guys from different sports trying to come into boxing, you know, most notably football. And Charlie Powell was one of the early um, fighters who had a career in the NFL and then jumped over to boxing. But I will say this about him, all right? Unlike a lot of guys that we saw, like Mark Gastineau, Alonzo Highsmith, um, a couple others who tried to transition, Charlie Powell was actually pretty legit. All right. Like he wasn't going to be heavyweight champion of the world, but for a time in the late fifties into the early sixties, he did have some good wins on his record. He was a tough guy and he scored a major knockout over Nino Valdez, which at the time was pretty shocking because 
you know, not think anyone expected him to do that. But that being said, that was probably the best guy that transitioned from football over to boxing. And that is a pretty notable win because out of all the guys that he suffered else to around that time period, Powell is probably the one that he shouldn't have. Well, and, and I mean, I think you, we can probably firmly say at this point too, that by this time, this was when he, when he clearly started to slide. So I did in fairness, kind of mean up to this point, like, you know, because even right after that, his very next fight, Nino Valdez's very next fight against a dude named Dan Hodge. And he fought, yes. Who, sure. like, Maybe the greatest amateur wrestler in history. Like I can't, at least I, in I can't open my mouth too much about what project I'm getting into right now. But let's just say that in my research, I've come over, I've come across that name a lot, and so. In any case, yeah, like it's and and that kind of matchup actually becomes far more uh far more a commonplace right around this time in the 1950s, the kind of boxer and wrestler matchup. And the success of Dan Hodge actually doing this helped spur it on too, where a bunch of the people in the wrestling community were like, Hey, you know, what is this? But well, any case. Danny Hodge was so respected that he was even on Monday Night Raw. Um, in his in his later years, and like you know, with Jim Ross or something like that, and he beat up Triple H <laughs> before he yeah, got like that, it is. You know what I mean? Yeah, highly respected name in the world of wrestling for sure. Yeah, he had a very interesting late career. Another another win he had too that should be noted was against um a uh, white heavyweight who was making a lot of noise named uh, Pat McMurty. Um. Yeah, Pat McMurtry. Yeah. Pat McMurtry. Um. Yeah, he was a, a Pacific Northwest dude, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I read, I read about him in the, uh, in the Ring magazine as a kid. You know when I'm, I, I don't know if it was, I don't know who, I don't remember who it was that used to do the, uh, the articles on the old guys. But it would be every month they would just do one on a random dude you learn about. And um, the McMurtry brothers were one of them. It was Pat and his uh, brother Mike, who suffered, I think, a brain injury in his pro debut, so he had to retire quickly. But Pat had a good record. Was mm -hmm. out there for. While, but um, clearly, um, you know, Nino Valdez by fifty eight showed him, you know, where he was going to be in the division. So, yeah, and th and that's that's about where McMurtry leveled out too, like right around at that level. Like he was a contender, but like a lower level contender. The other guy who beat up the ghost of Ezra Charles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he f he actually fought in Portland a whole bunch of times. Uh, so like that's one of the main reasons why I'm even familiar with that name, but. He was actually, if you look in the number of the 1950s Ring magazine, he pops up. There's a number of articles about Pat Pat McMurtry. He's one of those people that like nobody oh. would ever talk about now. I Here mean, we are. Sick, but yeah. <laughs> but um, no, he was a good looking guy. He had a good following. He was, you know, clean cut, especially for that time period. So in the 50s when everything was just kind of mild mannered America and um, conservative and chill and whatever. Oh, he fit right in. He was a dream boat. Ten dollars on the clean cut white boy. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm sure he was a dream boat along with Chuck Davy. But um, yeah, Valdez. I mean, in a good fighter though. Don't get me wrong. He had a very good amateur career and everything like that. But like you said, Valdez kind of put him in his place to show where he was going to be. Like he wasn't going to reach the top of the division. And it is what it is. There's a lot of guys like that that just kind of reach a certain level and then they have to plateau because of it. But yeah, um. By 1959, eventually he has to run into, you know, the guy that I'm going to bring up next, um, Charles Sonny Liston, the ultimate boogeyman of the era, you know, and Liston did what he did with any of the other guys that were his contemporaries. He disposed of him rather quickly. But 
no shame in that. Valdez had a long career at that point and, um, you know, had proven himself to be a very genuine top contender for a long time and a guy that would be talked about for years afterwards. So no shame in getting stomped by Lister. If the, if the guy that George Foreman is saying he's the only fighter who ever pushed me back or whatever in sparring. And by the way, I actually, I actually found an article because I, I had not been able to find this, but I found an article uh, from Oakland that okay. like described a Liston Foreman sparring session. And yeah. it basically said that Liston beat the shit out of <laughs> and that it, like he that Foreman was like hurt like he was like Ooh. and I mean I'm not surprised I'm just saying that like but if George Foreman is telling you that you know please believe that Liston was legitimate I'm just saying that's all I mean when people try to say today well or just look at him and be like well he really wasn't that big because Liston wasn't the tallest guy compared but he was just massive, man. All right. He had his incredibly hands. long yeah, his hands were humongous. He had incredibly long arms. He just strongly built and he was very technically well. He was good too, as we segue into him now. Like Charles Sonny Liston was the most avoided dude you could have imagined in that era, right? He was public and when it comes to Customato's list of guys I'd never want Patterson even to be around. He would literally take Patterson and put him in Antarctica and keep him that far away from Liston. Like, Liston was public enemy number one, not only just in boxing, but just basically in America. For the time period of what was going on back there, he was the poster child of what was wrong and keep away and don't let anything happen to that. Like, you know what I mean? Lock your doors and hide your kids. <clears throat> and it's sad, too, because it was just a guy that had no chance, you know, from the day he was born and manipulated and just taking advantage of and uh, you know a product of the system and the times you know what i mean especially like within the mob and all the other stuff but when it comes down to it listen was just a bad bad man in the ring all right and at that point in time no one had seen a bruiser of that caliber since i don't want to call i don't want to say the days of dempsey because they had different styles but maybe like the days of like joe lewis you know I'm, I was just going to say real quick because I I had a couple of tidbits that I found about Nino Valdez that I don't want to give up because <laughs> I because I did the research. <laughs> I was just going to say that, uh, sorry, and we'll get right back to listen. I, I don't mean to Absolutely kill not. the momentum, but um, Nino Valdez endorsed steak, drinks, suits, milk, drinks. milk. And a whole bunch of other shit in Cuba. He was like a that massive like of a star that he had his name on like and face on like everything. And then oh, another, okay. and I, then, I dude, I just thought you meant like steak drinks. I was like, what do you mean like a steak that, like a drink that tastes? Like okay. That would that sounds terrible. I hope not. <laughs> um, and then that's uh, pretty cool. According according to him, according to Nino Valdez, like a later interview that he gave, he said he was forced out of Cuba during the night in the 1960s during the revolution. And in the seventies, he gave an interview. And in the interview, he said that Che Guevara and one of that, uh, he said, Che basically demanded that Valdez use his status as a popular ex fighter to, to deliver pro revolutionary propaganda. And that when he refused, they gave him 24 hours to get out of Cuba and seized everything he owned. He said that when he was living in New York in the seventies, um, or I think it was New York. In any case, he wound up working a bunch of odd jobs. And then he was a bouncer, a bouncer at a topless joint in Manhattan. He died in 2001 
presumably alone and without much to his name. So just just to close out that story on a high note and moving it perfectly right into the menacing Sunday Liston. Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Um, again, yeah, Liston was the ultimate boogeyman of that division, man. A guy that was just it's hard to explain like the the type of aura that he had that people like you didn't want to fight him all right even like his contemporaries from that time guys like Foley or Nino Valdez or Eddie Machen or all those type of dudes I don't know how eager they were to get into the ring with him too like they were hoping that they were able to get a title shot before they had you know eventually would have to fight Liston because Liston was just that type of guy you know what I mean like no one really knows his exact birthday um Springs Toledo uh, historian of short and air has come up you know he wrote an article where i think he came up with the close enough what would possibly li- be liston's birthday do you remember that yeah it, a lot of the time when that's this type of stuff winds up coming up like it did with archie moore mm-hmm. they go by like census data and shit like yeah, that because yeah. at this point like they don't fucking do census for shit anymore at least that i you know not like they used to but back then, it was basically like if you wanted to depend on somebody's birth date or whatever, you'd either have to go to church records because churches would record like baptisms and births and stuff like that or census data. And so I think that that's what he wound up going with. Okay. But yeah, Liston was, you know, born in the South again before, um, you know, with a dad who non-existent and you know and a mom will struggle stuff like that like he he struggled really really hard he was put out he was put onto the field beaten all the time till finally he decided i need to get the fuck out of this and decide uh, to venture out and as he ventures out you know clearly he's already a dude who's massive for his size as a kid um and working in fields has a you know strong acumen stuff like that but easy to manipulate too because you know he doesn't know how to read doesn't know how to write he's completely inarticulate doesn't you know whatever he doesn't have any really guidance or nothing like that so soon enough you know he starts running afoul of the law and that's when you know things start kind of uh, happening for him in terms of like eventually finding boxing and stuff but like at first it looked like it was going to be a dead end job for him well i think that a lot of people correctly in my opinion make the comparison between sonny liston and mike tyson not because of their style or anything like that but because both of them were just, you know, in life, uh, born into, placed into whatever positions where they were always being exploited or somebody was always looking to exploit them, basically. Um, and for a lot of fighters throughout history and now, too, boxing is a means of taking that power back, um, even if only slightly because obviously you're still answering to a lot of people, generally speaking. So, I mean, a lot of people make that comparison between Sonny Liston and Mike Tyson. Usually when they do, they talk about the intimidation factor and how, you know, Sonny Liston is a bully and Mike Tyson's a bully. And they both, they got both stood up to Sonny Liston by Muhammad Ali, Mike Tyson to generally Evander Holyfield. But so, you know, but I think that the the idea of their background and kind of how they arrived to where they are and the fact that, yeah, they're obviously kind of like villainous, but they're not like, they're not like awful, shitty, psychopathic villains. They're villains who are like, you know, 
not trying to be all talking about like the fucking Joker or something, but you know, <laughs> villains who were like kind of pushed into that role and manipulated into that role. And that's exactly what Sonny Liston was seen as back in the day, dude. As soon as he started hitting headlines in, in boxing, they have like ex champions. They got Dempsey, they got, uh, you know, Marciano coming out of the woodwork talking about his behavior and like he needs to behave himself. He needs to, you know, represent heavyweights better. And it's like, dude, step back, <laughs> go, go live your fucking restaurant tour life, buddy. Leave Sonny Liston alone. Cause it was like, you know, Sonny would like get stopped by the cops and it would be like, you know, something would make the headlines cause he got stopped by the cops and arrested. What did he get arrested for? Like resisting arrest or, you know what I mean? Like the circular type of fucking shit. And so they'd be like, wow, you know, he's a bad boy when nothing was really happening. And, you know, of course you get hit with those, that kind of shit constantly like Mike Tyson it 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 affects you oh it's especially again too man to, to bring up the time period we're in suburban america where everything is just mild-mannered and um there's still a lot of uh racism going on you know in terms of just it, it's bad you know there's a lot of tension thankfully we got past all that yeah uh, yeah totally right everything is nice and peachy now <laughs> so <laughs> um but Imagine a guy like Liston, all right, already, you know, by the time his career started and right away, he's already being affiliated with mob ties. He's, you know, done jail time, um, type of jail time where he's been like known for assaulting cops. I think, you know, broke bones, other stuff like that, just, and certainly doesn't talk too much, looks very scary, um, you know the absolute epitome of what everyone is scared of in America during this time. You're a police officer in like 1950 two or some shit you see Sonny Liston driving a car you're 100% pulling him over guaranteed yes. absolutely you know? you're gonna try to start some shit with him too and it's unfortunate because Liston wasn't a guy that actually looked for trouble it wasn't like he was driving his car looking for a cop to beat up or anything like that he was profiled he was pulled over he was interrogated he was you know provoked and then he had to react accordingly it is what it is you know what I mean especially you no know, measly cop over there looking like a guy that you saw on the sand lot um you know, the movie, you know what I mean? When they with the plea, whatever like that was gonna do anything with a guy the size of Liston. Liston would break him like a pretzel. So but that being said, when his career started out, he was another guy that was not uh that wasn't built up with patty cake records or anything like that. You know what I mean? Right away within his first three fights, he was already fighting Johnny Summerlin, who was 18 and one and an established contender. Like it shows you the type of fast track Liston was on. He beats him twice right there, and then his very next fight after that, he fights um Marty Marshall. Marty Marshall is a guy that basically is a trivia question now in terms of boxing history. Otherwise, he wouldn't be remembered. And the trivia question is, who's the first person to be Sonny Liston? His name was Marty Marshall. Marshall was a guy, um, you know, I wouldn't even call him a, a, a barely on the fringes of contendership, but a dude who was very tough and fought a lot of guys and had a, you know, he did the his record, um, I think, basically showed that too. You know what I mean? A record like 19 and 6, 20 and 6, whatever it may be. People look at that type of thing today and be like, oh, it's an ugly record. But look at the guys he fought also. That wasn't an ugly record back then. That was a respectable record for a guy that applied his trade. That being said, he gets dropped early but comes back and breaks Liston's jaw. Liston has to recover from that kind of struggles and ends up losing a split decision. Um, people that want to question Liston's heart now, a lot of people saying that he quit against Ali or in the second fight or yada, yada, yada. 
Go back and see something like that. Not many fighters are going to fight through a broken jaw, especially if it gets broken early in a fight. It has to fight a sub -sub subsequently, you know, six, eight rounds or whatever it may be to, to go through that. Not fun. All right. I certainly wouldn't do it. The minute I get my jaw broken, you touch it again, I'm going to scream and run away. So kudos to listen to doing that. And that was a learning experience for him, too. And only two fights later, he fights Marshall again and beats him up. And then from there, he just starts terror, you know, moving his way up there. Um, mm -hmm. These guys aren't top contenders that he's fighting yet, but he's still moving through the rankings. He's fighting the middling contenders and the guys that are getting closer to the top 10. Dudes like Burt Whitehurst, um, who, tough guy, you know what I mean? Never was going to be a top guy, but one of those gatekeepers that would be um, dependable in any era. And Liston gets his rounds in with him. Fights another fight with Marty Marshall. Um, Julio Medeiros, who we brought up in the past show, that was another guy with a bad record, but uh, fought a who's who of everybody, had some respectable scalps on his name, and was a tough guy. Liston's beating all these dudes to, like, pulp, man. Like, it's not even close, you know what I mean? He's whooping the majority of them. Whitehurst is the only one that can go to distance with him, but Liston otherwise is just straight up slam-banging these dudes left and right. Now, by the time, almost on the cusp of the, of, uh, the 60s now, Liston is moving himself up to be that point where he's becoming one of the boogeymen in the division, if not the number one boogeyman, right? You know, there's still Eddie Machen and Zora Foley kind of circling each other. And Nino Valdez, let me just mention, who's hanging on. And, you know, there's a few other heavyweights. Patterson has already ascended the throne at this point. Um, but there's still guys like Cleveland Williams and others. And at this point, Liston is chomping at the bit to get one of those guys now. He knows he's not going to get Patterson, but he's chomping at the bit to get one of those top contenders, the other boogeymen that are avoided. First one to jump at the bit, and understandably so, because he wasn't a dude who, who clearly showed he was fearless, was Cleveland Williams. One, well, I mean, uh, you know, you, just to kind of reiterate with Floyd Patterson and the heavyweight uh, championship kind of getting tied up or whatever, you know, the first couple of fighters <laughs> that Floyd takes on are Tommy Jackson in that rematch, Pete Rodemaker, Cowboy Roy Harris, and Brian London. And Brian London had already been wiped out by that point too. So it's kind of like it, it, and then, you know, Ingemar Johansson was not, he, he was not a bad fighter, but he was not supposed to really win that fight. You know, he was not supposed to kick uh, Floyd Patterson's ass. So it was kind of like accidental trilogy here. You know, like this was. That they know, dragged out. Yeah. After Ingle became champion. Like he was three years or something or under two years. I mean. Because after Johansson became champion, he wasn't about to risk his title against Liston. Um, you know, he, I, and even though he had knocked the hell out of Eddie Machen, um, I don't think he was that avert. I don't think he was all that excited to defend against the other top guys from that era either. Even though I think he'd have a chance to do the same to a guy like Zora Foley, considering what he did. He had a very fast right hand. And, you know, I think he's slightly underrated in terms of technique and ability to what he's remembered today. The guy twitching on the canvas against Patterson, but. That being said, his reign was extremely unremarkable and he should not be in the Hall of Fame. And yeah, that, that was just a trilogy that just dragged out and kind of put the division on frost. You know what I mean? All these guys just kind of squirming around each other, forced to fight each other because Patterson and Johansson. Yeah, another happened. two years. Another exactly. two full, almost two full years where these people are just waiting, going, so what are yeah. we doing? So at that point, Liston just decides, you know what I got to do? I got to fight all these contenders around here either the retreads that Patterson already beat up and just whooped them even harder just to show Patterson, you know, what I'm going to do to them, or I'm just going to fight the other contenders no one wants and kind of just, you know, destroy them too. 
So I would almost compare him sort of like Clubber Lang, except he wasn't as bodacious and wasn't, you know, calling out um, Patterson's wife, as far as I know. But um, he was one of those dudes that you're like, you know what, I'm just going to sit there and beat up everybody until you are forced to fight me. Because there's going to be no one else left for you to go out there and try to string along and be like, okay, I'm going to give you a title shot because I beat him already. You know what I mean? And that's what he proceeds to do. He fights Cleveland Williams for the first time. And for however long it lasts, for the three rounds it lasted, it was a barb murder. You know, Williams was a very strong-willed guy. He wasn't going to back down from anybody. And he didn't have the type of style where he was going to, okay, try to go back and lay back and box you. Like he got in, he got in Liston's ass. <laughs> and um, most dudes would fall from that fury. Liston wasn't one of them. You know, that's what made him so scary in the ring is that he took those lumps, a lot of lumps that most dudes would drop from, you know, composed himself, came back with his combinations, and left Williams laying there splayed out in the ring. And from there, yeah, Nino Valdez was another just mugging victim, Willie Bessemoff. And by the time he fights Cleveland Williams again, this time we're in 1960 now, same thing. Williams comes out bombing, lands a few shots, bloodies Liston's nose a little bit, and then Liston proceeds just to lay him out. And um, even poor dudes who had no business being in the ring with Liston, you know what I mean? Guys like Albert Westfall or Cowboy Roy Harris, the one you just mentioned, Cut and shoot Harris, excuse me, Roy Cut and shoot Harris. Like, you know, those, it those can't were, be a real place. It's not a real place. <laughs> no. Those were like sacrifices, you know what I mean? Basically, they're just like taking a slab of meat and feeding it to Liston. <laughs> like, and, and even even some of the guys that were like Wayne Bethy, you know, Bethay, yeah. whatever. You know, that guy was a, a dude who was like not a bad fighter, but you know, he actually he defeated Ezra Charles, etc. Washed Ezra Charles, but still, like, he had a couple good wins. And yeah, dude, almost all these guys were just getting smashed. Uh, it wasn't just the intimidation factor, was the thing is that, you know, Sonny Liston had like a really, really good jab that was really hard. <laughs> you know, One of in, the best in, jabs in boxing history, not even just in heavyweights, no man. question, <laughs> dude absolutely incredible helps he had a jab that was the equivalent of someone's hardest right hand like it was just one of those and it just and it was strong and it was accurate and he's just you know it had power on it yeah and it would break your face like it would hurt you you know visibly hit you and you would start bleeding immediately your teeth would get loosened your eye socket like whatever that was the thing that would break your face and he did it like, oh, man, you know, and then they got the hammer after that with the right hands or the body shots of the uppercuts or anything else he wanted landed. Like, listen, was technically well. He could outbox you if he needed to outbox you. You know what and I mean? The he way could... the gloves were at that point? Jesus, uh, dude. Are you kidding? So he's basically wiping out the entire division for Patterson until Patterson's forced to fight him. But again, we've mentioned this now. We're in the early 60s. The way America is and it's still very conservative. We're in a time that, like, you know, we all these issues going on and stuff like that. Liston is the last person because the heavyweight championship of the world, it's been watered down so much since then. But back in the 60s still, it was still considered the premier championship in sports, not just boxing, but like in sports in general. You were the heavyweight champion. You were the fucking baddest man on the planet. And everyone kind of looked at you. That's why like Marciano, well, you got to be respectful. <laughs> You know, all that stuff because the heavyweight yeah, it was champion. like an institution. It wasn't just fucking, you know. Yeah, you know, it was like the prestige of being the champion and going around and carrying that belt and all that and listing being a career, a career criminal and a leg breaker and a mafia, you know, um, enforcer and this <laughs> and that and all these other labels put on him was not what a heavyweight champion was supposed to be. And considering he was black too, that's a double whammy. So it's like, oh my God, you know, Patterson at least was respectful and 
a good you know a role model for kids or whatever it may be but like well and he, and from the white perspective too sorry to cut in but oh, like no. you know and i might not be like the best person per se to talk about this but from the white perspective you know in but this this has been a thing ever since the 1800s where they're talking about Joe Gans as being like, Oh, he's quiet. And he's, he's not making any noise, but yeah, Sam yeah. Lankford, damn, you know, it, you know, and it wasn't even that Sam Lankford was like, you know, a noisy dude, but it was just, he'd like be knocking motherfuckers out unrepentantly. And so then he was a bad guy, but like, there was always this comparison between like, especially black fighters where like one was conforming to the shit that white America said you had to, and the other was not really. So that was the bad guy. And yeah. that was Sonny Liston, whereas Floyd Patterson was quiet and, you know, kind of soft spoken, didn't really talk shit about opponents. Not that Sonny Liston really ever did either, but he was, you know, Floyd Patterson was, uh, you know, not in trouble with the law. He didn't have quote unquote, didn't have mob ties, et cetera, et cetera. So that comparison is also, you know, unfortunate, but important in terms of viewing the history of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, <coughs> excuse me pretty sure didn't um kennedy was it john f kennedy or robert one of them get in touch with patterson and publicly ask him please don't fight him or don't lose to him or something like that or some something like that i'm pretty sure yeah like and patterson to his credit was the only one that was like you know what i can't like live with myself if i don't fight this man he's clearly the number one contender you can't keep having me keep on ducking him <laughs> and i'm just gonna do it and look what happened. I mean, Patterson finally gave Liston a chance, and well, you know, he never lasted three minutes in either of the fights, but... And wasn't there some... And I know that, and sorry to kind of... But you kind of jogged a memory. I'm pretty sure that Estes uh, Kefauver, the dude who did the... Who yeah, led yeah, the investigation, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure he had some connection to JFK, like like uh, political connection. But in any case, I, know, I do know that uh, Robert Kennedy and JFK were trying to um, do something about, do something on the federal level about corruption in boxing and that also people in wrestling had, were like reaching out to them and trying to get them to do the same for wrestling. And that Jimmy Hoffa right around this time was also trying to unionize boxing and wrestling, <laughs> which is its own anyway yeah that's like its own fucking show but in any case um yeah so the, the kind of jfk connection the kennedy connection here is actually kind of interesting for that reason because they were kind of getting involved in the yeah. oversight of boxing at this time too interesting yeah and so patterson fights him gets splayed out just i mean it was it was just that just as everyone was worried what was probably going to happen absolutely happened you know and then by this time, though, Liston becomes very inactive. You know, at that, like, right before he fights Westfall in 61, then he gets the title shot against Patterson um, almost a year later. Like, it took about nine months before he got that fight. And then after that, again, in the rematch, again, it was almost a year before they had that. So, like, I can only imagine how America would feel if <laughs> Liston was just kind of holding the belt on ice for almost a year and just, you know, <laughs> wasn't on too many talk shows, wasn't doing anything like that. Everyone was just kind of trying to keep their distance. And then Patterson again tried to come back and poor guy again got really hurt. And, um, you know, then the Ali fights happened. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude. I mean, and yeah, poor Floyd Patterson just could not do a damn thing. Like, I mean, it was like punches that weren't even landing. We're knocking him, like bowling him over, or like knocking him silly. He just, he couldn't do a damn thing with Sonny Liston. 
but I mean, so I, I guess that's that's pretty much the point at which Sonny Liston stops being a lost heavyweight or whatever because he becomes champion. He but does. No. I mean, you know, I didn't mean to cut. Like, go no, ahead. no, please go. I was just thinking, you know, after the Ali fights, that you know, Liston's post Ali career kind of gets looked over a little bit. But I mean, the guy was putting in some work there. He wasn't fighting top guys the entire time, but. He was fighting very, very active, much more so than right before he became champion and, you know, was beating some. He was beating a lot of dudes. Some of them, you know, more respectable than others. He fought Billy Joyner twice. We've talked about him before on the show um, because of Oscar Bona, the Oscar Bonavena connection. But, um, yeah, you know, he also fought a dude like guys like Henry Clark, um, Elmer Rush, Amos Johnson. And there was a lot of talk at one point about Liston challenging either Jimmy Ellis for the WBA belt um, possibly fighting a guy like Bonavina. There was a lot of talk about him fighting Jerry Quarry, um, <laughs> George um, Chavalo at one point, and even Joe Frazier. So all these fights were around the orbit for Liston, and by the time he ends up fighting Leotis Martin in 1969, who is a forgotten heavyweight but a monster puncher and a guy that should be more remembered today than he is, um, Liston kind of lost it all, you know, had he won the Martin fight, chances are he probably would have got a title fight, whether it, whether it had been a WBA shot or, you know, a big fight with Frazier or something, but a big fight would have, would have taken place. And instead it was a fight that Liston was actually winning. Um, he gets knocked completely unconscious, you know, Martin cold cocked him, I think a right hand or something like that. And Liston just John Tate fell on his face unconscious. Didn't it's move a crazy him. looking knockout too. Cause it's like, you could see like Liston can like see the punch. It's like, he like sees it and it goes like, eh, but just takes it. And he's like, man, you know, just yeah. goes to sleep. It's like, fuck. And that was it. You know, he fights Chuck Wepner after that in his very last fight, butchers Wepner. And then, um, you know, soon after his found been dead. Yeah, dude, you know, there's so many mysteries and so much like about his entire life, you know, not, not even just his death, but his birth like uh, chunks and periods of his life are kind of like missing the history yeah. or whatever. And uh, some people, you know, Springs Toledo, uh, some people have tried to piece it together the best they could and have done a really good job given what's out there. Um, one of the craziest things to me, as far as like what was lost, obviously his life. And I don't want to downplay that, but it's like, he could have, given insight into his own life if he had just lived a little bit longer and you know almost all of the heavyweight champions that have lived on and kind of been able to like you know years later kind of sit down when shit has cooled off yeah. you know they're almost all of them tell some stories you know and some of them aren't even fucking true but even the fact that they're they're telling untrue stories like tells you something about them in a way and that's something that we missed with Sonny Liston, which sucks because he might have been able to just say so much more, dude, you know? Yeah, yeah, man. You know, that people talk about his personality and how he was super quiet and everything. And that was because, he, you know, he was kind of worried about talking around people. He didn't trust them and thought people would, like, make fun of him and stuff because of um, kind of being illiterate. But... Uh, you know, there there are times that you can tell he he had some charm to him if he was feeling in a decent mood. Like for instance, and um, when he stops Henry Clark near the end of his career, um, he's in the ring with Howard Cosell, and 
you know, they were like, Costello was like, oh, you know, you're looking really good and everything. And listening clearly is like, you know, feeling himself. And he was like, so what were you thinking? He was like, oh, you know, well, I felt he was getting sassy. Um, no, he said, uh, he, he, he said something. Um, no, he was trying to get cute. He was like, I felt he was trying to get cute. He's like, when guys get cute, they get sassy. <laughs> and Costello <laughs> was like, he was like, you're feeling pretty chipper. He was like, I am. Yes, I am. Feeling really good. He's like, I feel like I was just warming up in the seventh round. That's when he stopped in round seven, <laughs> you know. And, and he loved kids. He did. He did. There's that. There's a great gif of um that you can find of him where he's holding like this uh little girl or boy. I can't really tell. It's a black and white video, and um he's holding the kid. I think it's a little girl. He's holding the kid, and the kid goes over and rolls over and like kisses him on the cheek. And Liston's giving her a serious look at first, and she pecks him, and then Liston just gets the biggest smile on his face, and he kind of like you know. <laughs> I'm fascinated by him. I ended up getting a tattoo of him because I'm fascinated by the guy. Like he's just a very, very un- misunderstood, mm-hmm. fascinating person who um had an unfortunate end. And um, I think pet people speculate more on what happened because of its mysteriousness than just kind of like coming to the conclusion, hey, you probably did OD or someone hot shot at him. And you know, his uh, it it kind of it bears like repeating even though everybody knows we we don't need to talk about the fucking Ali fights dude you know yeah that's why I even yeah <laughs> yeah we don't even need to but in the wake of the rematch dude Sonny Liston's reputation took such a hit people don't like get it you know what I mean because the negative feelings that you feel towards Sonny Liston anybody listening or watching are almost guaranteed the like the fucking ripples from the bad press he received for years because of that fucking fight dude if, even now like when i post shit on the anniversary if i just post a photo whatever people are just like fixed dive asshole fucker you know people are just like they hate the guy and it's like wow <laughs> wow but but you know then again you get a dude like jake lamata who was like i took a dive in this fight and people are like Oh, this guy's so cute. Yeah, we love you, Jake. And he was I, um, a scoundrel. Yeah. A scoundrel. But I here's, mean, here's a question, bro, for you. Um, the only thing I'll ask about the Ali fight: say the first, the rematch took place when it was supposed to, when Ali didn't suffer an appendicitis, right? By all accounts, Liston was in ridiculous shape for that one, and really motivated for it, and I guess put himself through some rigorous training and was like, you know, had himself in the right headspace where, whatever. Considering the turmoil that Ali was going through himself and uh, what was going on during that time, I don't. I'm not sure if Liston would have won. I'm pretty, you know, Ali probably had his number at that point. He was at his peak, but I'm pretty sure that he would have gave a better account, much better account than he did the first fight, and probably would have gave Ali a little good, you know, run for his money. So many, like, dude, so many planets aligned in the first fight uh, for mm-hmm. Ali, despite all of the shit despite all of the you know all of the accusations of x y or z with the eye and but so many planets aligned for ali in that fight you know from being underestimated and being kind of dismissed all the way to like the style etc but and i know it's like blasphemous to say but ali was not invincible dude and not only was he not invincible, there were times where he looked straight up shitty against not very good fighters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, there are some wins where many people feel he should not have gotten those decisions. Like, there's more than just a couple. There's several. And so, I mean, 
even though, again, I know it's blasphemous because he's the greatest and he's fucking awesome. And, and he is, I'm not saying that's not true, but he was human, dude. And you put Liston in a position where he performs with a better game plan or whatever than in that first fight, dude, I don't have it. I don't have any doubt that he could have done better. He could probably couldn't done a whole lot of worse, you know? So yeah. Yeah. And there was, there was so much outside the ring shit and his, you know, the delays, then it's goes to Lewiston and it's like the smallest. We, I just said that to you the other day, the smallest crowd for a heavyweight title fight to that point period. And even to, even to that point, it had been an Ezra Charles fight where, where there was like five times as many people. It was so fucking small. So yeah, dude, there was so much shit going on for that rematch. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, dude, Sonny Liston's definitely up there as far as one of the fighters who kind of at least at the very least lost a chunk of his career. You know, he, he won the title. So he's kind of, it's kind of like when Archie Moore won the title, he's no longer the black murderer's row when he's getting yeah, all these yeah. shots or he's, you know, getting fighting these big name fighters. He's not in that, he's not in that group anymore, similar to, to Sonny Liston here, but nonetheless, obviously lost a chunk of his career. Totally. Totally. By the time he beat Patterson, man, he was already past it. And no one even knew his true age either. People are already speculating he might've been in his late thirties, even by 40 by that point. So who knows, you know? I mean, in looking at him, it's tough to say though, dude, because people aged differently back then. And Liston, and Liston was no choir boy outside the ring, and you know, everyone like his wife and others would say, "Oh, Liston never touched drugs or nothing like that." He was known to be a hard drinker, like a very hard drinker. With when it came to like you know, with vodka and orange juice or whatever, he was like drinking stuff like that. But he was a heavy drinker, and he definitely did drugs. Like it was that was known, and there's been enough accounts out there yeah. now with people that he's dealing with to know that he was using heroin and other things that up to that matter you know what yeah, i mean no, no matter how many times burt sugar has assured you that he yeah. was deathly afraid of needles <laughs> let me tell you something about drug addicts buddy. they will shed that fear real fucking quick absolutely and liston was found with a needle i wasn't you know i just whether whether i you know from what i understand and what i write about in my own speculation i think that someone hot shot him because clearly no one was gonna go in there and like kill him on their own so by the end of his life, you know, there was a lot of tumultuous stuff going on and then a lot of outside stuff. He was dealing, he was dealing with a lot of sketchy people, including um, this jazz musician that was pretty famous, but an absolute junkie and um, a dealer on the side named uh, Red Rodney. And so there was, you know, just a lot going on. Well, and, you know, unfortunately, not to kind of like devil's advocate the shit, but just like now, uh, people die on accident taking fentanyl that they didn't know they were taking. You Absolutely. know what I mean? And so that's a possibility. And that's something that not even a lot of the people who do speculation talk about. They talk about the hot shot. They talk about mob kill, you know, all sorts of shit, dude. It could have literally just been an accident, but who fucking knows, man, that sucks. Um, So I got, I got one more fighter though, that I kind of did a little bit of research on and wanted to talk about a little bit. Cause he does figure in, um, and I, I mean, not perfectly because he because he does he does get a, a couple of really big opportunities here. But he, I thought he was a very interesting dude to talk about, and does again at least figure into the time frame. That's Rex Lane. Um, yes. Yeah, definitely uh, an interesting character. Not quite to the point of a Tommy Hurricane Jackson, but 
nonetheless, uh, definitely some interesting kind of bullet points on his career and somebody who doesn't really get talked about a whole lot apart from his connection to Rocky Marciano. So, um, but Rex Lane actually was the national AAU champion in 1949, which in and of itself, again, similar to the Cuban thing we were talking about earlier. If you want to say, oh, somebody's the national AAU champion in 2023, that might not mean anything to anybody. You know, somebody might not really give a shit about the amateur athletic union at this point. But like, you know, back then in 1949, that's significant. Um, but actually, Rex Lane had a pretty distinguished amateur record, all told. You know, uh, he's definitely no Mark Breland, but he... Not many are, my friend. Yeah, yeah, I mean, needless to say. But no, he he definitely had a fairly distinguished amateur record, um, especially for a dude from Utah. Um, he was a supposedly a devout Mormon, and so he had gotten into... Uh, he was a sugar beet farmer or came from a family that was a family of sugar beet farms uh, farmers. And he gotten into amateur uh, boxing in Salt Lake city. And so uh, something that, you know, some people have to kind of remember here about Utah, they're not going to know it now, of course, but back in the day, especially right in the years uh, following Jack Dempsey's uh, retirement and whatnot, between Colorado and Utah, there was like a tug of war as to where Jack Dempsey was really from and shit like that. And so Utah was trying to claim him. Colorado was trying to claim him, you know, Manassa, Colorado, but like he was from Utah his, his, and his family was from Utah. But in any case, uh, they were trying to kind of boost up these Utah born heavyweights uh, in the post Dempsey years by, of course, name dropping Jack Dempsey and Rex or, uh, uh, Rex Lane was one of the fighters who had probably the best pedigree as far as actually being a pretty good fighter coming out of Utah uh, as as a heavyweight. And so Jack Dempsey, you mentioned him earlier, uh, throwing his hat into kind of like either there were a number of fighters that he actually promoted or managed. And then there were also fighters that he would kind of stick up for in the press because he liked them or liked their style or liked something about them. And he would sometimes compare them to himself and shit like that but at yeah, least Dempsey endorsement was pretty awesome for a guy back then too yeah yeah dude dempsey was like the shit in the 1930s people still loved that fucking guy and into the 1940s uh and so in any case rex lane was one of those guys who kind of got an official endorsement from jack dempsey especially because he was a utah guy so mm-hmm. anyway uh another thing was that he had served in world war ii as a staff sergeant and so, you know, he he had some clout to him. He had a he had a little bit of clout to his name. And then a little extra thing for Jack Dempsey to get his back for was that he was a he was a practicing Mormon. And Jack Dempsey, something that he had always said about himself was he called himself a Jack Mormon. I had to look this up because I didn't even know what the fuck that meant. It apparently is just like somebody who's non-practicing. You know, it's like a, a lapsed Catholic or whatever. Somebody who's anyway. So being from Utah, that's significant. But yeah, uh, he had that Jack Dempsey endorsement and as a professional, started his pro career in 1949. And he had a fairly short pro career, all told, and got quite a bit done for a fairly short pro career, to be honest. He was pretty busy. But um, coming up undefe- uh, undefeated through like, you know, about two dozen fights or so, uh, or uh, in about two dozen fights, he only lost once. 
uh, to a dude named Dave Whitlock. I have absolutely no who no clue who that is, but he got vengeance on that. But he he maneuvered his way into the heavyweight rankings pretty quick, actually, pretty quick into his career overall. By by nineteen fifty, his first big fight against a well known established name is a guy is against a guy by a, one of my favorite boxing names ever. By the way, a dude by the name of Turkey Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Turkey Thompson uh, did not look like a turkey. He was a very well built man that had a ridiculous left hook before Joe Lewis came on the scene. I'm mean, not Joe Lewis, excuse me. Before um Joe Frazier came on the scene, um from the and Turkey Thompson was from the Joe Lewis era. One of those uh, contenders who. Never got a title shot. Probably did, did deserve one at one point, and um, was you know one of the. But he had knockout wins over El Moray and a bunch of other guys because he was dangerous. He was a very very dangerous individual. He could be outboxed. He could be beat. But if he caught you with a shot, you know, it was a good chance you were going to be seeing stars for the next five, 15, 20 minutes. So that was a very big win for him to to get by Thompson, who um by all accounts carved up his face like a turkey, but. Um, Lane was still able to outbox him and, you know, get that scalp. And in that same year, the biggest one of his career and probably what it would end up being the biggest one of his career was against former heavyweight champion, um, Jersey Joe Walcott. Yeah. Uh, yeah. At, at that point he wasn't, yeah. Heavyweight yeah, champion. Yeah. Heavyweight champion. Excuse me. Yeah. But, but still though, similar to Archie Moore, you know, like he'd been around the fucking block and but he'd actually had a couple of small chunks of his career, Walcott, that is, where he had gone kind of dormant. He said that he had gotten disillusioned. You know, he didn't really want to, you know, keep fighting for a title shot he didn't think would come, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, even defeating Jersey Joe Walcott, especially you know, a year and a half into your pro career. Yeah, dude. Well, any any respective no manager today, if this was this time period, wouldn't put anybody in a year. Fight him in with Jersey Joe Walcott, who we talked about before was the biggest pain in the ass ever to fight. So, nah, nah, that shows you how much. Well, first off, that shows the type of error that you're in that they just threw you to the wolves like that. And second, that shows you uh, Lane's level of ability that he was able to overcome guys like Turkey Thompson and Jersey Joe Walcott after only turning pro like a year before that. So, and and I mean, it wasn't like he, uh, it wasn't like the quality of his opposition, or he just like dropped off either, dude. You know, he huh. went through some pretty decent contenders immediately after that. Cesar Brion, uh, Bob Satterfield, who of course we, he was a a very good puncher, but not a great chin. But nonetheless, like he was still he was still somebody. You know, he was it. Yeah. He wasn't like some random piece of crap or something like that. You made he, that movie. What's that? He made that movie that Samuel Jackson was. Remember <laughs> yeah, that? Yeah, I I'm not gonna lie, I never watched the movie, but I knew of it because I knew of the story. Wasn't but... bad. Wasn't bad. I mean, Samuel Jackson's great, so I mean, can't. Hear yeah, it. he's he's of course solid, but like, um, but yeah, and so unfortunately though, where that led, uh, where that led Rex Lane immediately into, you know, not with through no fault of his own, was into the loving arms of. Heavyweight champion Rocky Marciano, poor guy. Right, right about, yeah, right. Future heavyweight champ Marciano, right on the cusp. And Good you know, baby. this was this was a uh, this was one of the highlight fights on the um, on my VHS thirty great one punch knockout videos as a kid. You know, it, yeah. You know, Lane was a favorite in the fight, and probably rightfully so because if you compare their records, Marciano was already you know had thirty five wins at that point. But if you look at the comparison of the competition Marciano was fighting and the competition Lane was fighting. Lane had already beat Turkey Thompson and um, um, Jersey Joe Walcott. 
plus a couple of other, you know, lower ranked contenders. Whereas Marciano at this point, um, I have to look at the record again, but I'm just, you know, he had already struggled. I already had an arguable loss with um, my man, Tiger Ted Lowry earlier in his career that by all accounts, he should have lost. Won the rematch. Um, struggled mightily with Roland Lestarza in their first fight in a fight that most people thought Marciano probably got lucky to deserve that decision. So, I mean, you know, they, and if you look at their styles too, Lane, even though Lane wasn't, you know, a, a beautiful boxer or anything like that, he was much more cleaner than like, you know, the cruder Marciano. So yeah, Lane probably, you know, Lane was rightfully deserved, I guess, the favorite in that fight. But um, yeah, Marciano, again, was just uh absolute bowling. You know, you couldn't beat him back then. He was, he was just a, he was a massive beast. You know what I mean? Like one of those guys. Even Charlie Goldman. Even Charlie Goldman was like, yeah, I don't know about this Marciano. Like, when he first saw him, he was like, eh, mm, I don't think so. So, I mean, you know, you could imagine that people who don't know who Rocky Marciano is at this point or have only maybe seen him once or something like that are like, who's this guy? Like, get him off who? What? So, yeah, yeah I could see Rex Lane being favored over him for sure. Well, you know, Marciano bulldozed him. I mean, like, Lane was tough, and he hung in there for a few rounds, but clearly you could see that Marciano was just going to be the stronger of the two and eventually overwhelmed him, and then it was just a right hand uh, that Lane just slumped in all fours, man. Marciano had that way of just slumping dudes when he hit them, and they just kind of, like, fell in sections, and Lane was no different. He was the first one, I think, that really caught the Marciano slumping like that. Because um, he wasn't doing bad, you know, he just got caught, and boom, and he went there and just... <laughs> Yeah, you you might be able to like outbox him. Just don't be in the way when he swings. Just just yeah, don't be in the way. Be in the way. You know why? Because Marciano was such a bruiser that, of course, you know he wasn't like pleasing to watch in terms of style and stylist or anything like that. But the dude was just constantly beating the shit out of you, man. Whether he was beating your arms or shoulders or beating you in the sides, or your hips or kidneys, whatever, he's beating on you and beating on you, and he's hitting you and he hits hard as hell. And so even if you're outboxing like Jersey Joe Walker or any of these dudes are just sitting there and doing well with him. You're gonna get tired because your body can only take so much of just being the shit, you know, just being pounded on, right? So your arms start dropping soon enough, your arms are dropping, your legs are starting to move a little bit slower, you're breathing a little bit heavier because this guy just keeps on hounding you and hounding you. And before you know it, you're in a corner, you can't move anymore. Well, you know. Yeah, you know, it's that constant <laughs> the constant pressure where like, you know, they say, Well, you only have to make a mis- one mistake, really, and that and that could be your ass. And that's that's fighting Rocky Marciano. Because the way he swings, you know, he's putting like everything into every shot. And so that's, yeah. And that's pretty much, uh, there's no shame in, of course, losing to Rocky Marciano, especially if you're not like a really, if you're not a really big heavyweight and you're losing to somebody like that. You know what I mean? Like that's, I, I get it. Um, but then, of course, he runs into Ezra Charles, who Ezra Charles is like, you know, immediately after losing to Rocky Marciano, three months later, he gets in with Ezra Charles. And in, and it's a version of Ezra Charles who's still very much on. You know, Oh, still- yeah. It's like 1951. Charles is slide. As, I mean, slightest little slide, but still top contender-ish and a guy that's, you know, can still beat most of the guys in the division. And, and also, to be fair, Ezra Charles' best days, almost bar none, were at light heavyweight. Like, Clearly. you know he was not a big heavyweight whatsoever, even when he was in very good shape. Like, you know, his legs aren't super cut. He's not super in general. He's just not super cut, but nonetheless, uh, you know, he's still a very good fighter at this point. And so he gets beaten up pretty good by Ezra Charles through over 11 rounds. Again, 
no shame whatsoever. But well, I think that it's probably shouldn't have taken only three months after Marciano. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. I mean, especially now, knowing all that we know about concussions and CTE and stuff like that, we obviously have a much be- much more informed uh, way of looking at these situations now than they did then. And we can probably recognize now like signs of like somebody being impaired or, you know, being hurt or whatever. And I'm not saying that was the case, but yeah, getting your ass kicked real bad and then coming back three months later against a really good fighter who himself can punch a little bit is probably not the greatest idea. But then they were like, yeah, go ahead and throw him in there. No problem. So <laughs> whatever. But um, that being said, uh, a, a, another thing that kind of enters the equation here. <clears throat> uh, I had brought up the IBC before the International Boxing Club of New York. So the International Boxing Club of New York has already kind of uh, gotten their paws on the heavyweight championship, right? And on top of that, part of what the International Boxing Club of New York did was um, basically they had set up different venues throughout the East Coast and Midwest. And I think they had like one in California that they had associations with or whatever, but like these were the venues where they would stage their fights and they had like strongholds or friendly people or whatever in the mob that could kind of look after shit locally. And that's, and that's why a couple of writers called IBC quote unquote tentacles Inc because their tentacles spread out along, you know, these major cities, Chicago, Detroit, and Boston, et cetera. So in any case, um, Rex Lane is kind of building himself back into contention here. He loses to, to Willie James, uh, but like the problem is that in some of these losses, like he's getting like beaten up, like he's getting knocked down several times. He's getting beaten up. He's getting his face messed up and shit like that. But then, um, you know, he, he works his way kind of back into contention. And even though he loses to Harry Matthews, he gets a rematch, uh, with Ezra Charles in Ogden, Utah. And so this rematch with Ezra Charles is actually officiated by Jack Dempsey. Jack Dempsey's the referee and the lone, you know, the lone judge of this fight. So there's widespread speculation as to whether or not the IBC has somebody on hand in Utah, like, you know, basically, quote unquote, shadow officiating over this fight kind of thing. And so... Strangely enough, Ezra Charles, according to reports, should have clearly won this fight. But Jack Dempsey mysteriously scores seven rounds even, two rounds to Lane and one round to Charles. And so Rex Lane gets this fucking win by one point uh, with seven, you know, seven even rounds. And there's a bunch of there's a bunch of kind of speculation and controversy and stuff like that. And this is, of course, also right when, right around when Ezra Charles is, you know, we're starting to see slippage, yes. but he's not quite there yet. But that being said, you know, they they wind up rematching again over in Winterland Arena in San Francisco, where they absolutely cannot hide what the fuck is going on by any means. And Ezra Charles gives them a whooping. But, <laughs> but I mean, the fact that this even kind of enters the equation here, I just I thought that that shit was hilarious because I didn't know about that at all. Oh, well, uh, um, what's his name? Ray Arcel mentions that in the book, the Dave Anderson book in the corner. <laughs> yeah, he does. He talks about the whole scenario. I don't I don't have the book on me or I don't know where it is for that matter. But um, 
to summarize something, I know they were already treated kind of unfairly when they were trying, like he talked about all the time they were trying to find good accommodations for Charles when they were both, you know, travel fights and it would be difficult because, you know, Charles being black and his entourage that he was with and everything like that. And Arcel and, already had beef with the IBC. Yeah, exactly. So before the fight, Arcel went up to Dempsey, who he had a relationship with, he'd known Dempsey for decades, you know, he used to follow Dempsey around and was, uh, was ringside there in Toledo when Dempsey won the heavyweight champ. Like, you know, they, they had a long relationship. So Arcel went to He wasn't before. the guy doing the dancing, was he? I, I don't know, man. Maybe you're the dude in the straw hat that I saw in the ring swarming too. He's one of them. I have no idea. But um, Arcel apparently was at a lot of big fights back then, which is crazy. But he went up to Dempsey before the fight and like kind of gave him the no uncertain like, hey, man, you know, we've been friends for a long time. I hope, you know, don't fuck us. Like, like just try to keep it normal. And Dempsey was like, yeah, yeah, you got my word. No one's going to get screwed like that. I'll just keep it down the line. And Arcel was like, that's all I ask. And clearly that didn't happen. You know, and like Arcel went up to him afterwards, like, yo, man, I'm really disappointed. You like, really, bro? Like, I thought we were friends, and this is how you kind of like do it. And Dempsey, like, either made an excuse or they even answer him and just like walked away. <laughs> My God, dude. Yeah, just, I, you know, we see shit happening today that we're like scratching our heads at, but some of the shit back then was just straight blatant, dude. They didn't even care. You know, <laughs> they were just doing it. Seven rounds even. Like yeah, seven, yeah. In a ten round fight, you're scoring seven rounds even, like one or two, fine, whatever. But seven, stop, fucking stop. But anyway, um, now this this was kind of during a period of his career. He was obviously slipping, and he lost to just about right around this time. He started losing to just about anybody who was any good. Drops a split decision to Roland to start. Uh, Lestarza loses in the third fight to Ezra Charles. Uh, Earl Walls loses by knockout two fights in a row drops one of those fights against Tommy Jackson. And then he kind of goes through a little bit of spell where he defeats some dudes who are not very good. Um, but then when he gets back into contention again, just swatted back down. So from 1949 to 1956, you know, that's a pretty, that's a pretty short career. And in seven years, he fights 70 times, dude. So yeah, that's a stacked one. I mean, that's how guys were fighting back then. And Besides all the contenders you fight too, sometimes, like you said, if he needed like a quick readjustment, what he would do was he would go in the ring, like you know, he would if he got lost like once or twice against a couple of top, top contenders and you need a number of wing, a uh, number of wins. Where do you go? Country fairgrounds. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there and knock, you know, go go on the circuit for a minute, knock around a few guys here and there, build up five six wins easy, knock yeah. out and then go yeah, back. I'm, I'm seeing a, a lot of Salt Lake City fairgrounds. Yeah, <laughs> you, know? you know what I mean. So. <laughs> Kind of like the same um the same routine that they did for um you know a lot of the guys that you'd see in the midwest as the you know the decades went on where dudes like buck smith and a bunch of other guys would just knock around absolute <laughs> terrible dudes would probably not with fake names for that matter all over left and right and probably that into <laughs> on ESPN. and then they would go back to the fairgrounds or you know the mobile alabama reformatory or some shit wherever they're gonna go you know what i mean the beaumont club or this place or that place and yeah so um lane's career interestingly enough too as we mentioned one of our um what same thing uh one of our past guys we just talked about he gets shipped off to germany you know at the very end and you know this guy kind of gets used as a paste and can fodder and you know to pat some records over there and another interesting note too is something i just kind of thought i just remembered about lane is that um when he was featured in a uh, ring magazine in the 90s some kind of retrospective on him or whatever. 
um, you know, he was talking about his career and all that. One one thing that happened to him post career that was kind of interesting was that um, he was incorrectly listed as uh, dying. Like at one point, I don't know if there was an obituary or whatever it was, but he heard about it and he looked it up and everyone was like, oh, no, you know, and all these tributes started pouring in left and right about Rex Land. And he was like, guys, I'm still alive. <laughs> <laughs> and then people were like, oh, wow, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's funny, dude. Yeah, yeah. He had like he was just like people were calling him and all freaking out, and he was like, "Wait, I'm I'm dead." <laughs> well, I mean, you got to experience your your obituary. You're gonna get to experience it twice. That's kind of nice. Yeah, yeah. I think he said something to that effect too. <laughs> Seeing who's really who really cares about you. Yeah, yeah. He was he was managed uh, and trained by a dude who had some connections in West Jordan to the uh, Fulmers. Okay. So I know that he he was significant, at least in when it comes to Utah boxing. You know, with all due respect, though, <laughs> Utah boxing has fallen off over the years. I but, mean, you know, I think its high point was um, Lamar Clark, in my opinion, at least. So <laughs> there you go. I mean, you you bring up uh, somebody like Buck Smith, it's like Buck Smith's like holding like knockout records and shit like that. Like nobody's ever seen him fight. They're like, fuck who? But yeah, I like mean, the... you know what, bro? I'll give Buck Smith this, man. Besides all those dudes that on the Midwest circuit back then, not to veer up, not not to veer up too quickly, but like of all those guys that would you know be on the circuit back then and just rack up a zillion wins and then you know fight the remains of Roberto Duran somewhere in Mississippi to get knocked out on Tuesday night fights. Buck Smith had a couple of wins. I mean, I watched this fight the other day with Kirkland Lang where you know, they dragged him out to the UK for that one. And like Lang was just beating his ass for the entire fight before Smith lands a wild hook that knocks him clean. And like, good for him. It was pretty, you know, I mean, it was hilarious though, is that right after the fight, you see Lang go up to his management and they're like, he's like, what about a rematch? What about a rematch? And you see them kind of waving their hand. I can just picture them say, Hey man, you know what I mean? We already got a schedule. We got to be in Mississippi next week. Gotta be in Salt Lake the week after that. We got another fight. Yeah, I'm, I'm fighting the circuit, dude. I can't. Yeah, I, man, I'm going back to Missouri after that, man. We we don't got time for you. We can't pitch you in. <laughs> yeah, I'm fighting that carnival circuit, bro. I'm yeah, sorry, man, I'm booked. I'm going back to the carnival circuit, bro. We don't got time. Maybe next year. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, you know, a guy like um, a guy like Rex Lane, who was not from a hotbed of boxing in Utah, and came right before um. Gene Fulmer for them. I mean, they kind of came around the same time. Fulmer is the same thing from Utah. And so for a brief period, you know, Utah was on the map for boxing, which is hilarious in itself. But um, yeah. Yeah, it's like the it's like the early 1900s, how like the Great Lakes was like a fucking hotbed for like, and now it's like with great who's? What? Yeah, Where? Yep. Nobody's <laughs> fighting there. No, it's not totally true, but still. Now, nah, um, yeah, I mean, there's there's just a number of these fighters, and I mean, we could probably even scrounge up a handful more, but I mean, I think we covered a pretty good base uh, from 1950s heavyweights of fighters who were kind of you know forgotten about, neglected, lost, um, okay. or just brushed aside while other shit was going on. You know, absolutely, and it's just one of those errors, man. You know, we're going up now at this. Uh, it's it's over 70 years now since these guys were competing, right? So, oh my God. Close to it, yeah, 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 yeah absolutely, Crazy. yeah. Seventy something years now with these guys because the sixties or sixty something, so yeah. And it's yeah, like, it's that, well, right? and not only lost in their era too because of these these little, you know, the the political bullshit. But now, you know, for our intents and purposes on the show, they're kind of forgotten about 
because you know these are some of the fighters that not not listen obviously but uh, a lot of these other fighters are fighters that just don't really get mentioned they don't and if they do get mentioned it's for you know for sad things like eddie machin usually gets mentioned for just being hard luck and you know falling out a window uh zora foley if he's ever remembered besides being stopped by muhammad ali he's only remembered for you know dying mysteriously in a pool and drowning um Tommy Hurricane Jackson is just kind of remembered more so for his eccentricity, you know, for being eccentric and kind of like a nutcase. Like these guys, you know, their career, they had careers and they had very good careers. You know, I mean, uh, some of them almost made it to the very top and some of them just got shunned for it. And it's unfortunate. And um, what happened to them outside the ring or their issues or whatever it may be, shouldn't be what they're remembered for. It should be what they're still able to accomplish in the ring and, how they didn't get the proper breaks that others did and that's unfortunate for them so glad we're able to remember them yeah and i mean hopefully we're able to put a lot of them in the proper context too so that yeah Yeah. it's it's not just tommy jackson the guy who got his ass kicked by floyd patterson but there's more to it you know there's more to more to all of these fighters than just uh their losses or whatever that's something that i said that i said the other day on the boxing history page that just it it's one of my pet peeves and pisses me off that I'll even even on days where it's like somebody's birthday, I'll post and say, oh, you know, so-and-so was born today. And there'll be like the first fucking comment will be like, they lost Ezra Charles. And I'm like, so who fucking cares? <laughs> what? But but, you know, adding the proper context, though, you know, hopefully that we're we're helping with that. And, and these aren't just, you know, some fighter that's defined by one moment or whatever. But yeah, dude. And I know that. First of all, your memory is incredible because so much of this shit comes from you just like reading magazines here and there. And I'm like scouring the internet and I'm just like, you know, trying to fucking find shit. But I I'd still appreciate that, you know, you're bringing your knowledge to the table, dude. Yeah, man, I appreciate this too. Uh, this is always a lot of fun and we're the type of nerds that, you know, thrive on this type of stuff. So it's awesome. Yeah, hopefully if I can keep myself from like, uh, you know, the the precipice of death, we we can keep some fucking shows going. No, I again I appreciate it, man, and I appreciate all of you who uh, either watched. If you watched, thank you. If you listened in though to the podcast, we would appreciate if whatever podcast platform that you listen in on, if you would go ahead and subscribe, leave a comment, rating. Those things are helpful. If you watched on YouTube though, also subscribe there, please. And again, reply. I'll try to get back to you. And yeah, we, we appreciate that stuff. As far as social media goes, the knuckles and gloves podcast is on social. I almost, it's been so long. I almost forgot the spiel, dude. Like I'm like, can't even go through the spiel. Cause we've been fucking off the air for so long. <laughs> now, uh, as far as social media goes, the knuckles and gloves podcast is on social media, like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also, as far as Twitter goes, we are individually there as far as Twitter, you know, as long as it lasts for now, it's kind of barely operable some days, but my boy Eris is there as Punch Zone Eris. I'm there as Patrick M. Connor. Say hello. We'll say hello back, dude. Absolutely. All right, man. We'll talk soon, bro. Have a good one, y'all. Lucky 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.